The following programming is sponsored by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my distinguished colleague, Maria Gallagher, the Legislative Director. Hello, Maria. Hello, Bonnie. It's great to be with you today. Great to be with you. June 24th, 2022 was a historic day in this country, one that will long be remembered and celebrated. That was the day the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in the case known as Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And our country hasn't been the same since. We've seen strong reaction on both sides of this issue. We've seen trigger laws that protect life from conception, and we've seen vandalism and violence from radical abortion supporters. And there is plenty of misunderstanding and misinformation. Setting emotion aside, it's important for all of us to understand why the court ruled the way it did. What were the reasons given to overturn Roe, a case decided almost 50 years ago? Today, we're very fortunate to have with us a constitutional law professor to help us better understand the Dobbs decision. Bob Bouchaw, an attorney who teaches at Pepperdine University Law School, will join us shortly to help us unpack this historic ruling. Because we wanna give the good professor plenty of time to discuss Dobbs, we will skip our inspiration segment today, but Maria is here to give us a very encouraging legislative update. Maria. Thank you so much, Bonnie. The Pennsylvania State Senate and the State House of Representatives have scored a victory through the passage of a proposed constitutional amendment, which would state that there is no constitutional right to taxpayer funding of abortion. The amendment would also ensure that the people, through their duly elected representatives in the state, would decide abortion policy, rather than a handful of judges through judicial fiat. The people in individual states deserve to have the final say on legislation that would protect preborn children and their mothers from harm. The constitutional amendment must pass the PA Senate and House in two consecutive sessions before it can be placed on the ballot for voters to decide. Statistics from the PA Department of Health show that more than 32,000 abortions occurred in the Commonwealth in 2020, the latest year for which statistics are available. Imagine how many kindergarten classes of children have been lost to abortion in PA. It's mind boggling. In Pennsylvania, abortion totals would be much higher were it not for the many pregnancy resource centers, which provide free counseling and material assistance for pregnant women facing challenging circumstances. Pennsylvania's state-assisted pregnancy and parenting support program offers true alternatives and options to women in their time of need. No pregnant woman in Pennsylvania should feel as if she is alone. Pregnancy help centers stand ready to offer no-cost assistance and the emotional support every pregnant woman deserves. 
Bonnie. Thank you, Maria. Well, I am thrilled to introduce today's guest. Bob Pushaw grew up in Pennsylvania, graduating summa cum laude from LaSalle College. He received his Juris Doctor degree from Yale University in 1988. At Yale, he served as notes editor of the Yale Law Journal and received an Olin Foundation Fellowship. After graduation, he clerked for Judge James Buckley of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, then worked as an employment lawyer for Davis Wright Tremaine in Seattle. Joining the University of Missouri School of Law faculty in 1992, Professor Pushaw taught constitutional law, federal courts, and contracts. In 1998, he won the Blackwell Sanders Distinguished Faculty Achievement Award as the law school's top teacher. In 2000, Pushaw received the William Kemper Fellowship for Teaching Excellence, the University of Missouri's highest teaching honor. He came to Pepperdine in 2001 and won the School of Law's annual teaching award in 2007. Professor Pushaw is a prolific author. His scholarly writings have appeared in the Yale Law Journal, Cornell Law Review, Georgetown Law Journal, Notre Dame Law Review, Harvard Journal on Legislation, and many other highly respected publications. At Pepperdine, he received the Dean's Award for Excellence in Scholarship in 2017. Professor Pushaw served as Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development from 2012 to 2015, and he is the faculty advisor for the Pepperdine Law Review. We are honored to have Bob Pushaw join us today. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Bob, for our listeners' benefit, could we just take some time and have you provide a brief summary of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion in this country. What was that all about? And what was it based on? Uh, well, it was based on nothing. Um, <laughs> the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. It says that states can't deprive anyone of their liberty without first providing them with due process of law. That means a state can't imprison you unless it first follows certain procedures like a trial before an impartial decision maker, right to jury trial, that sort of thing. In Roe v. Wade, the court baldly asserted that liberty included a woman's freedom uh, to have an abortion, which the court indeed deemed a fundamental right and that right was absolute during the first three months of pregnancy. During the second trimester, uh, states could enact regulations to protect the mother's health, but couldn't prohibit abortion. During the third trimester, the last three months, when the fetus was viable, that is capable of life outside the womb, states could ban abortion except when necessary to protect the mother's life or health. Now, the problem is that the court said that health included the mental health of the mother, and a woman can almost always get a psychologist to certify that having a baby would jeopardize her mental health. So the, that exception really swallowed the rule. Um, and Roe ushered in this 20-year period where the court, 
on a case by case basis ruled on whether the right to abortion was being infringed by various state laws, you know, waiting periods, 24, 48, 72 hours, uh, informed consent laws, uh, where a woman had to read information about the development of the fetus and, and try to make sure she knew what she was getting into, um, parental, whether parents had to consent to abortions of their minor uh, daughters and uh, a bunch of other uh, rules. Now, again, the constitution says nothing about abortion. It's a matter that uh, has always been, at least before Roe left to state by state democratic processes. So both the holding in Roe v. Wade and the later cases, the court was just essentially you know, making things, there's nothing in the constitution that could really guide them. It was their own personal, political, social, ideological, cultural, moral, religious beliefs. Did the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs surprise you at all? Uh, not really. Uh, I listened to the oral arguments and it was pretty clear that five justices would uphold Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks and would overrule Roe and Casey. So if you, if you look at the court's legal, and now put aside your political ideological views, if you just look purely at the law, uh, it's pretty straightforward, right? How, how do you or should you analyze the Constitution as law? Well, you first look at the Constitution, duh. You look at the text, doesn't mention abortion. Um, there's a right to free speech, the right to free exercise of religion, right to be free from cruelty. The right to abortion is just not in there. Um, okay, how about the people who wrote and ratified and implemented the 14th Amendment? No one thought they were conferring a right to abortion. Um, and that's not disputed, actually, by anyone. The dissenting justices and Dobbs didn't take issue with that. It's, it's an indisputable historical fact. So then the question is, well, maybe this is a right that is implicit in the Constitution. Um, the Constitution doesn't enumerate every single possible right, that there are certain rights that are considered basic because um, they're deeply rooted in America's history and traditions. Um, uh, but the court said that it's not implicit because the right to abortion not only is not deeply rooted in American history and tradition, it was actually prohibited uh, uh, in 1868 and no state constitution, state statute, state case or federal uh, 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 case ever recognized this right till a couple of states started to do so a couple of years before Roe v. Wade. You know, so because the Constitution's text doesn't mention abortion, there's no historical basis for the right. Under the Tenth Amendment, abortion, like all deeply contested social, political, moral, uh, cultural issues, is left to the democratic processes of each uh, state. So again, what all, all the court did in Dobbs was um, uphold the Constitution as written, intended, and understood, and implemented, uh, uh, and you know, put us back to the situation we had before Roe v. Wade in 1973, 
which was simply to leave the matter to each state. Why did Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion result in an overturn of Roe? Roe held that states could prohibit abortion only after the fetus became viable, which occurred at 24 weeks. Now, what happened is after Roe in 1973, you had neonatal advances in medical care, which gradually moved the viability line back to 23 weeks, then 22 weeks. I think 21 and a half weeks is the earliest a baby has been born and survived. So what happened in 1992 is the court in Casey reaffirmed Roe, said women have a right to abortion, but they abandoned this trimester framework. Um, uh, and instead they held that states could not unduly burden a woman's choice to have an abortion until the point of viability, whenever that was. Um, now a fetus is not viable at 15 weeks. So Mississippi law clearly violated the right to abortion recognized in Roe and Casey, and therefore those cases had to fall. Um, Chief Justice Robert tried to, to distinguish them, but I don't think very uh, persuasively. What is the significance of the overturn of Planned Parenthood versus Casey? The result in that case came down to three moderate Republican justices, Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter. They wrote a kind of a weird concurring opinion, and they concluded that although Roe probably interpreted the Constitution incorrectly, I mean, they basically said, you know, if we were on the court in 1973, probably wouldn't have joined the majority pretty weak constitutional opinion. But they said under stare decisis, the court should uh, adhere to this precedent. So this is the doctrine, as most of you know, that says in general, courts should stick to uh, cases the way they decided them in the past, unless there's a really good reason um, for overturning them. The, the case was plainly wrong and it's having terrible practical effects. And the concurring justice also said a couple other things. They, they said, look, over the past 20 years, women have come to rely on the right to abortion if they you know, had an unwanted pregnancy. And so we don't wanna upset that reliance interest, interest. And relatedly, they said, if the court overruled Roe v. Wade, the public would think that the court was caving into political pressure from conservatives, and that would weaken the public's faith in the court as a legal institution. Uh, I think that this joint concurring opinion is uh, absurd. I've said this in print. Why? Because the justice is saying that because the court uh, made up a right to abortion with no legal constitutional basis, the court should follow that mistaken decision. I mean, if that's true, then the court should have followed Plessy v. Ferguson in Brown v. Board of Education and held the Equal Protection Clause doesn't prohibit states from racially discriminating. Or the court should uphold Korematsu. I mean, there's any number of, of terrible Supreme Court decisions that have really no constitutional foundation 
and the court has, can, and really should overrule those decisions. Um, so I don't buy the, 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 this idea of, you know, stare decisis obligates the court to follow incorrect interpretations of the Constitution. The other thing is that in reaffirming Roe, see, the court said we can't bow to political pressure on, on the right, but the court bowed to political pressure on the left. Liberals were in Congress, uh, 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 in state legislatures, pundits, scholars were saying, oh, you can't. So essentially, when the court has a, one of these deeply contested moral, cultural, social, religious issues before it, it can be abortion, it can be same-sex marriage. Um, uh, there's always going to be political pressure on both sides. So it makes no sense to say, well, if we follow the law um, uh, under our best lights, um, it's going to, there's going to be a political backlash. Uh, it's going to look like to, to the American people were, were, were capitulating to political pressure. You know, I mean, any way you slice it, you know, there's going to be political fallout from these decisions. Therefore, I think the court can, should, and, and the majority in Dobbs, Justice Alito said that. He said, look, we just, you know, we just work here. You know, we, we're just supposed <laughs> to interpret and apply the Constitution as law. We can't really worry about political fallout. If we stop worrying, if we start that, we won't be able to do our jobs. You know, I mean, lots of things are politically unpopular. It's politically unpopular to hold the rights of accused criminals, um, but the court will do that. It's politically unpopular to say you have a First Amendment right to burn an American flag. I mean, the court issues politically unpopular opinions all the time, and they and and they should. Um, they they shouldn't really worry about that. Um, and I think that that's what the Dobbs majority said. That's what Justice Kavanaugh said in his concurring opinion. So I know when we first um, heard the news about the Dobbs decision, there was a little bit of confusion about who voted for what. Um, and in actuality, there was a 6-3 vote on one part and a 5-4 vote on another, if I have that right. Um, so could you explain that to us and then also talk about um, the dissents, what the justices who dissented said? Okay, five justices uh, held that there's no constitutional right to abortion and that Roe and Casey had to be overruled. Um, you had a dissent by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, totally predictable, right? They said the court had recognized the right to abortion for 50 years, so stare decisis required following uh, that precedent. And these justices added that the right to abortion was critical to a woman's autonomy, equality, and ability to fully participate in America's political, economic, and social life. Those three are liberal Democrats, totally uh, uh, understandable why they wrote what they wrote, totally predictable. What is striking is that in a very long dissent, these justices never mentioned the state's interest in protecting the life of an unborn child. If you go back to Roe v. Wade or Casey, the court was at least paid lip service to the idea that this is a difficult issue and you had to balance a woman's right to abortion against the state's interest in protecting the life of the unborn child. Um, I, you know, clearly that's not a concern to them. 
So, so we we've got we've got five justices to overrule Roe v. Wade and uphold Mississippi's ban uh, uh, on abortion after 15 weeks. We've got three justices saying no, this is wrong. We should stick with those decisions. Um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote this really, really bizarre, and I think very sad. He wrote, Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion for Chief Justice Roberts. It was his personal opinion. Not a single justice joined it. And basically, he would have upheld the Mississippi law on the ground that 15 weeks gave women what he called a, quote, reasonable opportunity, end quotes, to exercise their constitutional right to abortion because women, almost all women would know they were pregnant at by, by 15 weeks. So he said, look, there's no need to overrule Roe and Casey. We, we can continue to say there's a constitutional right to abortion, but it's only up to 15 weeks or so. Uh, we, we, so in other words, what Robert said is we can move the line back uh, to about 15 weeks, not viability, which is like 22 weeks. Um, the, the, the odd thing about Roberts's opinion is that Roe v. Wade and Casey were crystal clear. The holding of the court was that women had a right to abortion before fetal viability. What Robert said is, well, actually, we can say they do have the right to abortion, but it doesn't have to extend as far as fetal viability. And, and we can just decide this case without overruling Roe v. Wade and causing a political firestorm. Uh, uh, and then, you know, if, if the next case is a 14 or 13 or 12 or 11 or 10, then we can worry about uh, how, how many weeks is a reasonable opportunity. So in other words, Roberts thought politically it would be wiser to punt the issue down the road and then gradually kind of pare it back. The majority said, that's just stupid. There are all these laws like the Texas six-week ban on abortion after six weeks, various laws. He said, no, it just the same thing is going to come up next year. So why not, why not rule now? What's interesting, again, is Chief Justice Roberts provided no legal justification for his opinion. Um, there is no possibility that John Roberts thinks that the Constitution, as originally written, intended, and understood, conferred a right to abortion. There's no way Chief Justice Roberts, who is a practicing Catholic, uh, uh, is not pro-life in sentiment. Um, essentially, what Roberts said is, um, for political reasons only, uh, uh, we should not overrule Roe and Casey, because we're going to have political backlash. And Roberts said, we should think about the United States Supreme Court as an institution, and people will lose respect for the Supreme Court as an institution. If we overrule cases, they'll get the crazy idea that we're not following law, it's just personal or political or ideological or religious or moral uh, uh, beliefs. Um, but again, I, I think if you're the, I mean, if you look at the great opinions in Supreme Court history, Marbury versus Madison, Chief Justice Marshall wrote the opinion for the court. Brown v. Board of Education, unanimously. Brown v. Board of Education, Chief Justice Warren wrote the opinion for the court 9-0. It, it's, it's really uh, almost unbelievable that if you're the chief justice, you can't get anyone to join your opinion. 
but that's Chief Justice Roberts. I think he's he's basically, you know, playing a political game. What do you think will be the impact of Dobbs in the long run? I don't know. It depends on who is on the court. If one of the five justices, the majority dies or retires when the president is a Democrat, say over the next couple of years, and he appoints a liberal, which he will, Dobbs will be overruled. All this stuff that the dissenter talks, stare decisis, adhere to press, they won't adhere to Dobbs. It's all window dressing. Um, and that's why voting is so important. It is literally a matter of life and death. Bob, uh, did you have a part of the decision um, in terms of the phrasing? I, I didn't read the whole thing. I had re read a little bit of the leaked document, the first draft. Um, and maybe we should talk about that before we wrap up today too. But I'm wondering, like Justice Alito, he he's just such a straight shooter. Did you have a favorite part or favorite phrase that really stood out to you? Uh, there were a lot. I mean, it's a long opinion. The opinion yeah. with the appendix is over 100 pages. Probably what stood out is that he said Roe v. Wade was not merely wrong. It was, quotes, egregiously wrong, end quotes. Uh, what also stood out is that Alito makes it clear that the citizens of Mississippi and millions and millions of other American citizens believe that abortion is morally evil because it takes the life of an innocent unborn child. He said that several times. Now, he also said he recognized there are millions of other Americans who believe strongly in a woman's right to choose. So essentially, he said, um, you know, we should leave it to the democratic process. Basically, I mean, I think if Alito had his brothers, Alito, Thomas, uh, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch would probably want to say that uh, an unborn uh, uh, human being is a person under the 14th Amendment and, and states, you know, cannot allow abortion, but they didn't go that far. Um, they, that's why I think it's ironic, the, the backlash, because that would have been the, the opposite of Roe v. Wade is not overruling Roe v. Wade. What I just said is the opposite of Roe v. Wade. Well, what the court did is, is we're going to leave it to the Democratic, and it'd probably be 50-50, I think. Some states will ban abortion. Some states, like my home state of California, will, you know, allow it on demand up to nine months, fund it, you know, I mean, it, it, it which, you know, I'm not too happy about, but, but, but that, you know, that, that's what uh, Roberts, uh, you know, and I'm sorry, not Roberts, but Alito and Kavanaugh reiterated. Kavanaugh saying repeatedly, Constitution is neutral on abortion, leave it to the democratic process. Professor Bob Pouchaw, thank you so much for your insights about Roe versus Wade and the Dobbs decision. And uh, you've really uh, enlightened us about the law and we greatly appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is the largest single-issue pro-life organization in the Keystone State, with more than 40 local, county-based, grassroots chapters. We shine a spotlight on the most vulnerable individuals, from the very dawn of life to the twilight of life. To learn more about the inspiring work of the Federation, please visit our website at paprolife.org. You can also find us on all major social media. Just look for PA Pro Life. 
My thanks to my affable co-host, Bonnie Finnerty, and for you, the listeners who inspire us each week. Thank you for joining us. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life.